feel. Um, and I think you know, if you go into more sort of um, other cultures, one really has a sense of, of the practice really being a way of being. It's not something that has a beginning and an ending. And it really points to what the Buddha talked about, this kind of way of abiding in the world. You know, so it's not thinking, oh, I have, you know, when the retreat's over, I'm going to have a different way of being. You know, taking that specialness out. And also beginning to appreciate, actually, the, the fruits and the benefits of all of the effort you've put in over these days. You know, really treasuring those moments of, of calmness, those moments of clarity, and also having that sense of allowing them to deepen allowing them to deepen, treasuring the moments of wakefulness and really allow them to deepen. Today I want to reflect a little bit more on this second way of establishing mindfulness that John introduced yesterday and the reason why we spend quite a bit of time with this domain is because it is such a pivotal domain in our experience. It's such a pivotal domain in, in understanding how our world of the moment is born. And if you've ever come out of some great mind storm or some great emotional storm or some great obsession, and it feels like you kind of get spit out the other end, and then you look back and you think, how did that happen? You know, how did I end up in that kind of contracted, you know, difficult space? And, you know, sometimes it feels kind of bewildering, but I think the point of this practice is actually to take the bewilderment out of life. It's not to take the awe out of life or the mystery, but to take the sense of bewilderment out, which is so such a sort of forerunner to helplessness, to really understand how we get there, to not always live with, with kind of retrospective awareness, you know, next time I'm going to do it different, you know. It's about that present moment understanding. It's sometimes said that Vedana, Vedana, this hedonic tone, this feeling tone, that Vedana rules consciousness. The Vedana is the king or the queen of consciousness. And I think we, as we, we get a little bit more sensitized to what is actually going on in our own process, we begin to see how this is true. And this is not only present in Buddhist psychology, it's very much present in Western psychology also. We start with the obvious, the way that we clearly live, often in very different worlds than another the way that we clearly live in very different worlds ourselves, moment to moment. Yesterday, you know, we had the kind of raw materials, didn't we? We had the, the eye meeting the snow falling, you know, the ears meeting the sound, the body meeting the temperature. You know, we've got all, all the furniture for consciousness, don't we? We've got all the furniture for a world in place. And yet the feeling tone of that, those initial contacts, of course, would be very, very different for different people. I mean, if you're a skier, you know, the eye meets the snow falling and it begins a process of, you know, can't wait till this is over, unpack my skis, you know, I'm out there. You know, for someone who's kind of worried they're going to be stuck at IMS forever, 
you know, the, the sight of the snow falling has a different Vedana tone, doesn't it? It has a different Adonic tone. Oh, no. You know. <laughs> and yet, you know, even a few hours later, if you're in the midst of some blissful meditative experience, you know, you look at the snow and say, I'm going to be here forever. You know, so so it's, it's this changing flux of worlds. There's a, a, an Indian philosopher once said, we, we often think of the mind like a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world as it is, not always appreciating that the mind is the principal element in creating the world as I see it. It's a very important piece of understanding this practice and understanding this, this trigger that Vedana is. How, how it's, it's a trigger of a momentum. It's a, I think of it almost like a launch pad, Vedana. So the Buddha was very interested, of course, in the architecture of our world, the architecture of our world of experience. And the Buddha was very interested in the kind of architecture of suffering and how it is created. Because it was very clear in teaching that by understanding how suffering is created, that this is our doorway, of course, into bringing suffering to an end. So he looked at the process of mind. He looked at the process of his own mind, just as we're encouraged to look at the process of our own minds and to look at the process of our world-building moment to moment. And he traced a cognitive chain, we might call it, a chain of construction that begins with contact. And of course, contact is is very simple, just the meeting of the sense door with the sense object and the knowing, the eye with the sight and the seeing, the body with the sensation and the sensing of that, the ear with the sound and the hearing. This is a very, there's no overtones to this. You know, it's ethically neutral. It will be part of our lives as long as we're living, as long as we're existing. So we trace this cognitive chain, and I just want to go through it and then unpack it a bit. So what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, we dwell upon, and what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind, which becomes the shape of our world. Okay, so that's a very... Everybody got that chain. (laughs) Do you want me to repeat? (laughs) What we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind and the shape of our world. This is something, not an abstract theory. This is something actually to to track in your own experience. And of course, mindfulness gives us the capacity to track this chain in our own experience and to see if it is indeed true for us. So as I mentioned, the contact is very, is very neutral in the sense it has no, no implications, it's just part of being alive. The feeling, as John mentioned yesterday, the different feeling tones that arise in every moment of contact, the pleasant, 
the unpleasant and that which is neither. Again, this is, this is quite ethically neutral. It has no big implications. Now, some of those feeling tones, as also John mentioned yesterday, they're quite universal. If we had someone rampaging through the hall, throwing punches, it would be painful for all of us. It's a very small proportion of vagina tones that is actually universal. Most of them are actually quite already flavored by what we have felt before in those moments of contact. So when we contemplate Vedana, we're actually contemplating also the very nature of perception. What we feel, we perceive. Okay, This is almost an immediate process. The way that a name, a designation, a label is then brought forward and placed upon that moment of contact. Oh, it's a bird. Oh, it's, it's a tree. Oh, it's a Buddha statue. Oh, it's that person. You know, so a name, a designation is placed upon it. As Wittgenstein, a quote that John shared with Wittgenstein from Wittgenstein, said, you know, words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. So within the perception, the designating, the marking, um, the mind begins to follow, you know, a pathway of association. How I've known this before. How I've known that sound before. How I've known this sight before. How I've known this body experience before. How I've known this mood before. This is very clear in, you know, depressive relapse, for example, where a moderately unpleasant thought immediately triggers the memories of how that thought deteriorated in the past and led to depression. But this is also true, of course, in much of our emotional spectrum. You know, we see the mind begin to draw forth that world of association and memory, which triggers, actually, you know, the, it is this combination of Vedana and perception that begins to trigger the underlying tendencies of aversion or craving or often in relationship to that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, a certain kind of dissociation. So the underlying tendencies are triggered. Now the underlying tendencies of, I really don't want to be experiencing this, or I really don't like this, or I really like this, actually also turns back to uh, almost reinforce and strengthen the Vedana tone. You know, the unpleasant becomes more unpleasant because I'm remembering how unpleasant it actually is. You know, the pleasant even looks more enticing, because I remember the thrill I received from this in the past. Mm-hmm. So the perception and the underlying, the underlying tendencies that start to surround the Vedana tone and the perception feed back to strengthen the Vedana tone. Now this is, of course, once we have the perception, the thoughts begin, you know, how we assess this, how we interpret this, um, how we think about it, and the proliferation starts to begin, and this is where our emotional world is starting to come into play, because that proliferation is often carrying an emotional tone of of fear, anxiety, or anticipation, or wanting. We proliferate about And then, of course, we start to dwell upon, and this becomes the shape of the mind at that moment. So mindfulness really has two primary uh, 
jobs, I would say, in the field of Vedana. And one of the jobs, or one of the part of their work of mindfulness in relationship to Vedana, is to sever the link between the Vedana town, pleasant or unpleasant or neither, and the underlying tendency. So that capacity to stay close to the pleasant, to stay close to the unpleasant, without that movement into the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion that are activated, this is actually quite liberating. This is actually what allows us to see anew. It allows the development of equanimity. It allows the development of resilience. It allows the development of capacity. And actually short-circuits that cognitive chain of moving into proliferation and dwelling and shaping. And we see this in our practice. This is a big part of our training to stay, to know the pleasant as pleasant, to know the unpleasant as unpleasant, to know that which is neither as neither, and to have a sufficient mindfulness in place that even if we see the arising of the underlying tendencies of aversion or craving, we don't feel so compelled to dive into them and to continue to feed this process of construction. So this was one of the primary efforts of sati is to sever this link. It is what allows us to to live this moment rather than constantly repeating the past, rather constantly living and feeding the patterning that can actually make life feel so contracted. And the second job of mindfulness in relationship to Vedana, I would say, is actually Sometimes it's expressed as cleaning up the field of perception. So it's almost a very similar work of, of, yes, the labeling arrives. Of course, perception is part of our cognitive process and a necessary part of our cognitive process, you know. And of course, there is, you know, navigational perception, which is really, really helpful because it helps you to remember your address and recognize your house and get into bed with the right person. (laughs) You know, this is navigational perception, you know. It, It helps us to know how to find our way to the meditation room, you know, and what a bell means. And, you know, this is all navigational perception. It's quite neutral. It's simply part of the cognitive process. But what we're actually really being aware of with mindfulness is the way the interlinked nature of Vedana and perception and how quickly the perception, when it seems to be tinged with Vedana and the underlying tendencies, perception leads to repetition. So we're actually learning to actually value the navigational perception and not to use perception then as one of the building blocks of suffering, of contractedness, of reactivity and of habit. I think it was Blake who once said, you know, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. So really, the part of mindfulness is really sensing, actually, the kind of loaded nature. When there is no mindfulness, how perception is triggering and reinforcing Vedana tones, and then we go through life, you know, that's awful, that's beautiful, that's ugly, that's unbearable. You know, I, I know this through the eyes of what I have known before. 
So it just takes a refinement of the practice, you know. It does take a refinement of the of the practice and a genuine interest in actually beginning to sense how our world of the moment is being constructed, how, and the trigger point that Vedana uh, plays in that, and just recognizing the you know the Vedana tones that we believe to be implicit in things are actually really not implicit at all. But when we believe them to be implicit in things, then our reactions are predetermined, aren't they? If I say that that's ugly, that's beautiful, you know, that's terrific, that's awful, it's pretty much saying how I'm going to be with that, either to avoid or to pursue. So this takes a development, you know, it takes a real attentiveness, a very present moment, but more and more, I think, today, just... Being aware of how your world is being, this constructing process of your world to know it is a process, it's not predetermined. And the the capacity to stay close to the Vedana tone of experience, you know, just that simple knowing of, oh, that's pleasant, oh, that's unpleasant, oh, that's neither. To really get close to those, those, those points in which our world begins to unfold and to begin to be shaped. Really encourage you not to make a project out of this. You know, you know I've got my work for the day, you know, really looking in the mind that loves projects, you know. But not to make a project, but to have it almost like as a background intentionality, to just stay close to those feeling, the, those hedonic tones of experience and seeing what difference that makes. We stay really established within the anchor of the body, within the anchor of the body breathing. But it's an informed mindfulness, it's a curious mindfulness, being present with what is taking place there, being present within those moments of departure, a curiosity about the process of the moment. So again, just establishing a posture of balance and uprightness. Arriving in the body. Arriving in this moment. Sensing the life of your body just now, the contact with the ground, cushion, or chair, the feeling tone of that contact, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, whether it's neither. the spectrum of sensations in your body just now. Being able to stay equally near, pleasant and the unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant.
mindful of the thoughts, the images occurring just now. Also sensing their feeling tone. They're pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Establishing an anchor of mindfulness within the body breathing, the breathing process. Also noticing the Vedana, the feeling tone of breathing.
Okay, to build a little on what Christine has already said this morning. Each moment we are world building. We are world builders. We have a tendency to think the world is somehow just out there. And the Buddha makes it very clear to us that each, each breath, each footfall is a moment of world building. And at the foundation of that world building, or sometimes he uses the expression house building, the foundation of that house building is Vedana. And the Vedanas are coming and going. And I don't know if you've noticed that it's actually quite difficult to catch them. (laughs) There's something very, very slippery about these Vedanas. If you're feeling distraction now, or if your mind is wandering or being caught by a sound or whatever the distractedness is at this moment in time, you probably haven't caught the Vedana. All you've got is the distraction. All you've got is the desire to move. All you've got is the wanting to hold on to. So these are very slippery characters, these Vedanas. Um, And so we engage in these, I hesitate to use the term, but I will do anyway, we engage in these artificial processes. Yeah. We sit still, as you've just been doing. You, you go out onto a walking path and you walk a little slower, perhaps, than you would do normally. The danger with all of this, as probably some of you will realize, it all becomes sometimes a little bit self-conscious. I always remember a lovely story when Ajahn Chah the Thai meditation master first saw a Westerner doing walking meditation. He rushed up to them and said, Are you all right? <laughs> I sometimes have the feeling that the, the background music to much of walking meditation ought to be Berlioz's March to the Scaffold. <laughs> It becomes that self-conscious. Now, the only reason I'm saying this is that in both processes, obviously we are slowing things down. This is what we're doing. But we can do it so much that it becomes so self-conscious, self-conscious that the self-consciousness itself leads to rigidity and to tension as we do it. And this is an experiment, you know, I emphasize this right from night one, haven't I? This is an experiment that we engage in of getting that pacing right. Even that sitting right, in a sense where we're not building in so much self-consciousness into what we're doing, that the whole thing becomes tense. And that is equated, obviously, in MBIs particularly, with over-striving. Yeah, over-striving. So it's getting this balance right. And as we move out into our walking period, it's getting the balance right to, to enable us to perceive these very slippery characters. You know, the unpleasant and the pleasant and the neither, but particularly the pleasant and the ple- unpleasant. Because what you will find, and I'm sure this has happened to you already, is you don't watch pleasant Vedana arising, what you do is you find yourself looking at the bird. Yeah. You don't find yourself um, moving away from what is unpleasant. You just find yourself moving away. 
So this is a very tricky balance and really one suggestion, and this has already been made, is sometimes we need to look at the speed of our own minds, the speed of our reactions, to look at what's going on, to sometimes slow down very slowly if the mind is very, very speedy and you find things are happening very, very quickly. You're being pulled this way and that. Um, Bhante Gunaratna, as many of you know, his book in Mindfulness in Play in English said, actually, that's a lot of what meditation is. You know, the first experience of meditation is sit down, close your eyes, and welcome to the madhouse. Because your mind is being pulled in all directions. So we're slowing it down when the mind is very busy, when there is that cacophony of voices, often a cacophony of what's being pulled, because we don't see anything in that. We slow down. We take it either breath by breath or football, footfall by footfall. If the mind is sluggish and dull and sleepy, then it obviously makes sense to speed it up slightly. Personally, I never recommend people to go much below a genuine walking pace, just slowing it down sufficiently to be able to watch what's going on because the Vedana are so difficult to catch. Yet, as Christina has uh, so eloquently said this morning, they are so important because we have the foundation of our world building. We have the foundation of our entrapment within habituality and repetitiveness. If your world often seems repetitive and full of deja vu, that I've been here before, I've been doing this thing myriads of time in the past, then often at the root of it is habitualized reactive patterns founded on the way that we deal with the pleasant and the unpleasant. Yeah. And so we're slowing down sufficiently. It's good sometimes on that walking path, as has been suggested, I think, through all of the day, sometimes just to stop, particularly when it's getting very, very busy, when the mind is being pulled and pushed in these different ways and we can't see the Vedana. Sometimes we can just stop and sometimes we can perceive that underlying sense of unpleasantness or that underlying sense of pleasantness which will push or pull the mind in various directions. Above all, and this is being reiterated again and again and again and I make no apologies for saying saying this yet once more, the development of interest and curiosity in, in what is going on is fundamental to this whole process, whether we are sitting or, as in this case, as you move out into walking. So we take our Vedana for a walk. (laughs) Okay. Just one thing. Some of you will now have groups. If you didn't have a group yesterday, you probably have a group today, so please look. Um, And the other thing, back just to suggest... At the end of the day, we haven't had a bell ringer to bring us back at the end of the day just for the final sitting. I think we are organizing a bell ringer for this evening. So I would invite you, please, to come and sit at the end of the day to kind of calm the mind down because often a lot of thought is stimulated by Dharma, thought, Dharma talks and it's sometimes good just you know, before you know, going to bed just to quieten the mind down a bit. So I'd just come for that very short sit. It's not a long sit. It's only 15 minutes. Um, but good walking. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.